Lord, we pray that you'll lead us into all truth. Your word is truth, and your spirit is our guide. In Jesus' name, Amen. And, and thank you so much for that reading. I'm so glad it wasn't me who had to read those last few lines. It's a privilege for me uh, to contribute something to uh, the sermon series that we have here on Abraham. And this is not just any old uh, Bible character study. The chapters on Genesis we've been looking at, are uh, they describe events that are foundational to Christianity just as much as they're foundational to Judaism. And let's make no mistake that without Judaism there would be no such thing as Christianity. And there would have been no such thing as Judaism or Christianity had it not been for the promises made by God to Abram in these chapters. Something unique in the history of religion is taking place here. God's promises are expressed first and concisely at the start of Genesis chapter 12, which Paul preached on a couple of weeks ago. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. God tells Abram in verse 2 of that chapter, uh, that's what it says there. In other words, as it's expressed elsewhere in the Bible, I will be your God and you will be my people. So the promises about descendants and land that we find in chapter 15, as has just been read, are part and parcel of that essential one promise. There couldn't be a great nation or any kind of nation at all without a place for that nation to live and a line of descendants to carry on doing the living. But the essence of the promise remains, I will be your God and you will be my people. Now that's not the unique part in the history of religion that I was talking about. Ancient Near Eastern uh, history is littered with stories of gods and the nations with which they contract reciprocal relationships. Every nation had its god, and every god had its nation, and all of them boasted that they were the greatest, and disputes about this were normally settled on the field of battle. What's unique about what Genesis chapter 12 went on to say is this, I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That's the unique bit in the history of religion. That part of the promise is the thing that sets Judaism apart from all the other ancient Near Eastern religions. Within that part of the promise lies the seed of the expansion of God's care and rule past the bounds of one people and nation to embrace people from all the nations of the earth. Not only you and your descendants will be blessed, but also you will be a blessing. And in you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Now, it's not at all clear from Genesis chapter 12 how this promise is going to be fulfilled. And in a sense, it's going to take all the rest of the Old Testament and the New Testament as well for it to emerge, how this promise will find its fulfillment. But in Genesis chapter 15, the one we're looking at today, this extraordinary and mysterious chapter. In this, the lid is lifted on two key aspects of the fulfilment of this promise, which are as important for Christianity as for Judaism and as important for us today as they were for Abram, way back in the mists of time.
One of these aspects is captured in the second half of Genesis chapter 15. We'll look at that first and then go back to the start of the chapter. But before we go into it, it's worth pausing to acknowledging just how mysterious the goings-on that are recorded in verses 7 to 21 are. At God's direction, Abram slaughtered a cow, a goat, a ram, and two birds, cut the animals but not the birds into halves, and arranged the pieces on the ground in such a way as to create a path between, a bloody path to be sure. As far as scholars have been able to make out, this disconcerting procedure was the first step in a very ancient covenant-making ceremony. The idea was for the covenant partners, the parties to whatever contract was being made, they were going to walk down the bloody path together in solemn and symbolic acceptance of the life and death consequences of keeping their side of the bargain. So, they're saying, as, if, as if they're saying something like, if I prove untrue to my word, let what has been done to these animals be done to me. Now, as much as this kind of ceremony may be offence, may be an offence against our modern sensibilities, it didn't necessarily involve the wanton destruction of animal life, because for all we know, it may have been the precursor to an extremely carnivorous feast in celebration of the closing of the contract. And I think we ought to be aware, uh, aware of the possibility of hypocrisy here. Whether or not we're meat-eaters, and before we rush to criticise this ceremony, if we did a bit of research into how many animals die today, not in service of our needs, but to suit our convenience and our lifestyles, it might be that on that measure, it's the modern Western world not the ancient Near East that stands out for being barbaric. And nor ought we to be too quick to label a ceremony like this as resulting from a primitive or a superstitious mindset. In pre-literate and nomadic societies of the era that Abram lived in, the making of contracts wasn't necessarily a primitive affair, However, in societies like these, which lacked registry offices, archives, or courts of law to document transactions and settle disputes, the one thing the making of contracts had to be was memorable. And the making and use of this bloody pathway certainly scores highly on the memorability stakes. I can vividly remember, and I often call to mind, the walk I took down an aisle, not unlike this one, 25 years or so ago, having just made solemn and sacred vows to my wife Joanne on our wedding day. And that walk did not feature any animal parts. So anyone who walked the path laid out in Genesis chapter 15 would be unlikely ever to forget it. And now we come to the part of the narrative which takes what is happening out of the realm of ancient Near Eastern history and brings it into entirely new territory of universal and timeless significance so that it's therefore relevant to us today. If the parties to contracts like these were of roughly equal standing, 
then they would both be expected to walk down the bloody passageway as a sign to each other of their intention to shoulder responsibility to keep their word. But on occasions when one party greatly outranked the other, it is possible that only the weaker party would be required to walk the walk and so call curses down upon themselves should they prove false. But that is not what happens in Genesis chapter 15. Abram did all the things he was told to do and then, not knowing what would come next, he waited. And after waiting in the dark for a long time, he did something all too human. He fell into a deep sleep. At this point in the story, human activity, human wishing, human willing in relation to God's covenant had come to an end. The human agent had fallen asleep. The only actor remaining on the stage was God. This is uh, the Old Testament precursor and reminds me of nothing so much as the Gospel accounts of Jesus and his companions in the Garden of Gethsemane. About to be arrested, Jesus asks the disciples to watch and pray with him. But it is dark, and they are tired, so they fall asleep. There too, mere human agency failed, leaving Jesus to face the ordeal of the ages in the absence of human support. And then when Abram woke, he saw a smoking firepot with a blazing torch passing between the animal pieces that he had laid out. It's difficult to imagine a sight that would be more eerie than this. You couldn't really make it up. What we have described here is a theophany. In other words, an experience of the presence of God. And yet it is a description of something that is indescribable. It is described, in concrete terms, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch, and yet scholars detect a certain reticence in the description, in that the narrator avoids simply identifying the Lord with these strange phenomena. The Lord's relationship with them is not discussed. And there's not much to be gained from inquiring too much into their precise meaning. The one definite thing the narrative tells us in verse 18 of Genesis chapter 15 is that this is how the Lord made a covenant with Abram on that day. And the making of the covenant is of course the key to the chapter. In all of this, let's focus on the point that makes this covenant between God and humanity utterly unique in the history of religion. Here God condescends to bind himself in blood to Abram and through him to his descendants and through them to all the nations of the world. God passes through the bloody alley. Abram does not. Abram does not do anything. The Lord alone passes through, acting in the role of the weaker party. God has made himself the vulnerable partner in the covenant. He ratifies his commitment unilaterally. The unconditional nature of the covenant sets religion on a bold and new 
independent course. If the covenant is broken, as it will be, God has committed himself to take the bloody curse upon his own self. Notwithstanding the fact that he is not going to be the cause of the breach himself. It's not at all clear from Genesis chapter 15 how God's commitment to bear the curse of the covenant breaker is going to be fulfilled and in a sense it will take the rest of the Old Testament and the New Testament as well for it to emerge how this commitment will find its fulfilment. But nowhere is it clearer what the bearing of this curse means than in the Gospels which trace a path from Jesus' arrest in Gethsemane to his show trial in front of Pilate to his bearing of the cross on the Via Dolorosa, to his undeserved death in place of sinful humanity on Golgotha. The ordeal of the ages was also Jesus' finest hour, in which he walked the corridors of death alone and on our behalf. He who had no sin was made to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The seeds of all this lie in the liability for human failure that was assumed by the Lord, walking that bloody path alone, with Abram as his witness. The promise made there opens up a possibility that would not otherwise have existed, a possibility of blessing and of belonging, that extends as far as to reach us today. The heart of which is expressed in the words, I will be your God and you will be my people. That blessing and that belonging is a treasure which, once a person has been given it, they will never want for more. Now, earlier I indicated that Genesis chapter 15 shows us another aspect of the fulfilment of the promise to Abram that he and his descendants will be a blessing to all the nations of the world. That other aspect features in the first half of the chapter uh, on page 15, and chapter 15. In promising Abram many descendants, the Lord took him outside and said, Look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them, so shall your offspring be. Remember that the promise about descendants, along with the promise about land, were part and parcel of the promise that Abram would be blessed and his name would be named great. And remember too that this promise is a necessary precondition to the promise that he would be, that he would be a blessing and that in him all the families of the earth would be blessed. And then in verse 6 of the chapter, we read that Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. Now, this verse is of critical importance in at least three ways. It's of first importance because it is the root from which Jewish faith and Christian faith have grown. It is of present importance because it shows us how to live as the people of God today. And it is of final importance because it forms the basis of the only future 
that can be trusted absolutely in this fragile and uncertain world. Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. So this is how the blessing of God is spreading to the ends of the earth. And it's worth spending a bit of time unpacking it. In Romans chapter 4, the Apostle Paul has interpreted Genesis 15, uh, uh, chapter 15, verse 6 for us. Abram was righteous in only one way, namely in his believing, his trust, his dependence on God's mercy. That is the only reason God accepts us. We cannot earn his approval. We depend on his grace, which we have not deserved. In other ways, Abram was not a very righteous person. In Genesis chapter 12, he was content to send his own wife to be one of the king's wives in order to save his own life. According to chapter 16, he listened to his wife rather than to God and took her slave girl as a second wife for himself. In chapter 17, he laughed when God promised him a son by Sarah. We can follow him in his belief, his dependence on God's mercy, but we should not follow him in many of the other things that he did. This is such an important but also a difficult point for us to grasp because the desire to differentiate between people on the basis of their respective merits is deep-rooted and seems to have been baked into the human nature since the days of Cain and Abel. There there is nothing we can do to change it. Only God can change it. The God who credited Abram's belief in his promise as if it were righteousness. And the God who brought the Gentiles into his family before we could do a thing to deserve it. So if the usual way of talking about Abram is to emphasise his courage in venturing into the unknown, and uh, if, if, the, if the usual stress is upon his journey and his perseverance, well, that's not the way the Bible presents it. Abram, so far from being a model of righteousness, is first and foremost the original justified sinner, the original ungodly person who was reshaped by God into godliness, not because of his own deeds, but because of the God who justifies, rectifies, redeems and remakes the least acceptable, the most ungodly person. The promise of God and the promise of God only generates this possibility of renewal. All Abraham did was to believe and trust in God's promise. And there's one other point to note here. Abram did not have faith in his own faith. There wasn't anything particularly strong or praiseworthy about his faith as such. We can see this clearly by comparing verse 6 with verse 8 of Genesis chapter 15. One minute, Abram believed the Lord in verse 6, and the next minute he was asking in verse 8, just checking, but how can I know that I will take possession of the land? Uh, he, might have, he might as well have said, I do believe, but help my unbelief. The faith that Abram shows in this chapter isn't that impressive. It's fitful. He only got one thing right. 
which was what, or more precisely who, he placed his faith in. We can learn from this that weak faith in the God of the covenant promise is infinitely better than strong faith in anything or anyone other than the God of the covenant promise. Faith itself is not a meritorious act. It's just a pointer away from itself to the object of faith. I've heard it said, I don't know it's 100% true, but I've heard it said that when you are in the company of a chimpanzee, you can test the limits of its intelligence by pointing at something away from yourself. And as I understand it, the chimpanzee is intelligent enough to know that you are making a significant gesture and will therefore pay very careful attention to your pointing finger. But we will not think to turn its head and look in the direction that you are pointing. So this is an indication for us of how to live as the people of God. The Christian life is a life of fundamental trust. But it certainly doesn't involve putting faith in the quality or the strength of one's own faith. Nor does it involve credulity or a readiness to believe six impossible things before breakfast It involves careful discernment as to precisely where and in whom to place our trust. The Christian life is one of putting our daily trust in God rather than one of putting faith in our own faith or of undiscriminating trust in everyone and everything. It is a good thing to believe something that you didn't invent for yourself. It is a good thing to have a certain framework a story that tells you what kind of place the world really is. To join your voice in the church's confession, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, and all the rest. In the final analysis, this faith is the only thing staking our lives upon. I will be your God, and you will be my people. I will make of you a great nation and I'll bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. From the unilateral promise of God emerges a new possibility, an entirely new religious arrangement, one based not on human merit, but one which is by grace from beginning to end. Having started our Christian life by relying on the grace of God that justifies the sinner, let us continue to live in reliance on that grace every day and let us place our hope for the future in that grace of God alone. Amen.